another session with the Tri-Tech Games Podcast, starring Bruce, John, Trav, Pixie. So sit back and groove with us cats as we spin another session of the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. This is Bruce. This is John. And this is Trav. Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast. Your podcast of taking all your precious things, placing them in a secret chest, and then finding out your neighbors have stolen it. It belongs in a museum, properly con- in proper context in the culture, and then displayed correctly in there, all that good stuff. <laughs> Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast. This week we are talking about xenoarchaeology and uh, predominantly in the FTL universe. So, John, tell us uh, what xenoarchaeology is as compared to any other kind of archaeology. Well, I mean, it it basically is what it sounds like. It's it's the study of ancient cultures. So, you know, and you're typically doing this in situ on a planet or maybe in a research facility or in a university lab or something like that. But basically, xenoarchaeology is the study of alien cultures. So, and it does have a, a, um, a another thing that's paired up with it. It's called paleo-xenotechnology. There really is a, a, a um, uh, what's the right word here? Uh, discipline? Yeah, thank you. There's already a discipline called paleo-technology. And it, what it does, and it's basically the study of ancient technology. In this case, paleo-xenotechnology is the study of, well, ancient alien technology. And don't think this, we're talking about, you know, stone clubs and spears. That includes things like ancient spaceships that have been sitting around for a couple hundred thousand years. You know, right, but it, it can also include things like um, some of the uh, star charting uh, devices that even now... Are be, you know people are saying, wow, that was a really clever technique that they used back then. Yeah, oh yeah, and that also includes things like okay, so they didn't make the stars, but they did have a massive industrial complex. One percent, a one percent increase in efficiency can mean millions or hundreds of millions of dollars in savings. So learning how they how they did things can sometimes help us, or at least help the culture at twenty four forty eight. Uh, work out things, uh, you know, and and also you learn new things like you know, uh, ever wonder why uh, concrete crumbles so fast? But then you look at the Parthenon and it's still standing, because Roman concrete is a different thing than Portland cement, a radically different thing. And they're learning new things about all the time, and why the Parthenon's still standing and your local in the road outside your street is now potholed and cracking, ten years later after it was laid down. <laughs> The, you know, learning you know, learning how they did things, yeah, that can help you a lot. Well, it doesn't help that often when they build roads, they go for the lowest bidder. 
Well, you got to remember, also the Romans were building not for the next election period. They were building for the next century. Yeah. I mean, we're lucky if they build a road with uh, uh, a, a subsystem that goes down three feet. Okay. Romans built 10 feet plus. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, they didn't have problems with subsidence like we do. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I remember seeing a, a diorama of uh, R- Romans building the Appian Way. They went down 20 feet. And then built it up from there. They dug a trench 20 feet deep, and then they built the bed for it. And the Appian Way is still there, and you can still use it. It has some ruts, but still, it's still usable. You know, that's, you know, I, you know I, I-25 is not usable after 20 years of not being maintained. <laughs> you know, th- you, know you, you go to Chernobyl, you can see all the roads there are completely destroyed, except for the ones they they maintain to the reactors because they're still running Chernobyl number four, I believe it's still operational, you know, but everything else is falling apart. Yeah. But you know, that does beg the question. What, you know, why do you do, you know, xenoarchaeology? Well, let's be What's honest. The benefit? Well, the number one benefit is money. You find something new that you can, that you can license and, or patent and sell. I mean, it's profit. I mean, really, John, because I always thought that this, these sorts of things were where rich, you know, aristocratic people got rid of their kids for 10 or 20 years. Oh, maybe when you're digging, when you're digging up old mummies. Yeah. But when you're finding uh, spaceships you know, that may be, you know, yes, they may be a hundred thousand years old. And which means most electronics are shot due to uh, molecular, uh, molecular, uh, um, uh, what's it? Um, it's a n- name for it, but basically the, the molecules decide to move around and you know Brownian motion ruins things. But still, there's technology there that you if you can reverse engineer, you can put into the latest latest bunch of ships and improve you know the phase drives or improve the your various things. You might even find a work a working room temperature superconductor you know uh, that can be used in ships and really increase you know efficiencies and stuff like that. You mean another one? Another one. Don't they have at least one, I think? I think at least one, but, you know, hey, it may cap out, say, at about, uh, say, 30 degrees centigrade. If you get one that can cap out at 100 degrees centigrade, you can use it in a lot more places and run hotter at that point. Uh, That would actually reduce the cost of radiators if you can get a hotter superconductor. (laughs) But anyway, that actually comes up the next thing, new technology. I mean, that, you know... It's it's stuff, and when I say new technology, this includes what sounds like 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 a bunch of mundane things, you know, the uh, stuff that can be used in the home. So not everything's going to be used, you know, bright shiny starships. It can be actually used in the home or used in business. Um, uh, new methods, you know, new methods for uh, data analysis. You find that you find intact uh, computer system. Uh, and you can reverse en- and you reverse engineer the code, and you figure out, hey, this is a better sorting algorithm, and improves our, our search capabilities for for the in- for the interworld net by about five percent. We can be five percent faster. Yay! You can find you can find those cat pictures faster now. Yeah, and of course that. But then of course the thing, my thing, I'd be out there for, of course, is knowledge, more knowledge, more knowing about where everything where you know, our position in the universe is learning about the previous races and what they got right and what they got wrong, you know, and we got plenty of examples of people who got stuff wrong out there. Yeah. So, but, and that ties into like this learning about alien civilizations in general, uh, 
everyone's different, but there are always some things that are the same. There are always some needs every race has. We all need to eat. We all need to have kids. We all need to have certain things. And learning how they dealt with those things can help us figure out, you know, how the, how the better do it ourselves or how not to do it. You know, you know, negative examples are just as good as positive examples. Um, and on top of that, then, of course, because the way things are, you know, you have to deal with um, testing theories of life. Where did life come from? Everything starting in the planets, or were, or, or were there aliens out there going, "Oh, eyedropper here, eyedropper there, or some black goo over here"? You know. Well, I think you're getting a little <laughs> far afield from xenoarchaeology, John. Well, if it's if it's being done by ancient aliens, then it does fall right into xenoarchaeology. Then you. Just, I'm just saying, though, is that you know raising questions about the the beginning of life or whatever mm -hmm. is uh, only important if you're trying to uh, uh, figure out where to do your next dig. That's true. And, you know, but also kind of explains why we have such a high density of alien races in such a small space. I mean, um, there was a wonderful article. Some guy sat down and did a statistical review and said, to have the density of aliens we have right now, based on his numbers, every planet had to have an alien species on it. Every planet. And we're, we're talking things we normally consider dead worlds. We're so, talking about you're still talking FTL twenty four forty eight here. Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but no, this is actually in real life. Some guy said, you know, looking at Star Trek, and said, okay, so I did the numbers. How many how many alien races would there have to be? We're we're talking from, you know, guys with spears to to gods. Would that have to be for the density we see in Star Trek? And he had it basically about one every every two light years. Which when you watch Star Trek, since our, and that sucks since the nearest world, the nearest star to us is four. About four and a half light years away, Alpha Centauri. Yeah. yeah. Well, when you get closer to the center of the galaxy, the star stars get a lot closer together. Well, yeah, yeah. We're we're, on, we're way out on the rim. Yeah. Yeah, we're well, like three quarters of the way out. And we're in a thin spot too. Once you get into the thicker end of the arms, the gal in the in the uh, galactic arms, it gets a little denser. But still, yeah. But yeah, and that is, you know, that's that's another reason why you want to see our, you know, were we were we was everyone here planted? Or are they all independents? You know, so yeah, it's kind of hard to tell. And that's and by going to these digs and looking at all this information, you can start put piecing together this tapestry of, of this web of life and seeing, you know, how many alien races out there. I mean, based on our on our on our current star surveys, within fifty light years, there are two hundred and eleven potentially habitable star systems. This is out of a thousand stars. And and FTL has us about fifty, sixty stars. So there's still plenty of stars out there that could be have they could host life out there, or may have hosted life out there. So there's plenty of places to go and look. And that's the thing to consider. You know, you don't even have to leave very far to find some place to go look. And it's and I'm using F and FTL is a perfect one for this because it's actually a plot point in the game. More than once, but also if you're running the Frontier 2448 uh, campaign, one of the things that you can roll up is finding artifacts on your colony. You have a you have a one in twenty five hundred chance uh, every two months of finding an alien artifact, and you know what? It's that can have a lot, lot, lots of interesting side effects, you know. And of course, you have a one in fifty thousand chance of finding a high tech artifact. Yeah. So of course I'm working on the history of Frenner of Frenner two, uh, and I'm so I'm in year 
39, no, 38, and I rolled the dice. I rolled, I rolled the 5% chance of having discovery. Rolled again. Sna double lot. High-tech, high-tech, high-tech do-do-do-dead on the, on the planet. Wow, okay, yeah, that's in the, that's in the first 40 years. Uh, you know, the, yeah, so it's definitely something you have to consider and worry about. And the, the, we're talking this in the early years, so yeah, there's a lot of people going, you phone aliens? And it does have implications. If you find if aliens are that common, and understand one in twenty five one in twenty five hundred chance per every two months is more or less certainty that there's artifacts in that world over over a period of time. You will find them. Which means where are the artifacts in the soul system? Where are they? I mean, are they on Mars? Are they on Ganymede? Titan? Where are they? There's gotta be artifacts. There's gotta be artifacts on, artifacts on Earth. But you know, they've probably been paved over and turned into Q-gaws and, and gimcracks right now. If you're looking for artifacts, it's best to look at someplace where there never was people. Yeah. And but of course, you know, you won't, leave, you won't find any artifacts that people left behind when you do that. You'll find, well, yeah, you'll find a lot of garbage. But, you know, hey, most of archaeology is about interpreting garbage, because that's 90% what you find. <laughs> but anyway, so... Yeah, so those are those are reasons why, and you know, so what kind of person does this? What kind of person wants to go out there and you know find stuff? Well, number one, your dedicated researcher. You know, we know the you know the professor and his interns and his grad students want to go out there, and he wants to write that paper, and he's now going to look for some sort of funding, or it's a corporate thing. They're setting up a colony, and they need and they found something, so you need to send out. An archaeology team to make sure it's 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 nothing other than you know just pots, or it could be something, and then the corporation wants to lay claim to that, uh, or it could be a government thing. You know, it's it, uh, someone found something, and now the government's got to come in there and take care of it. You know, Isco sends in a team to deal with it, and yeah, it can be you know interesting at that point. <laughs> uh, but, but besides the, the dedicated researchers, you also got the Schleemans. The glory hounds. Sleeman found Troy, and he basically he was a glory hound. He you know he even got arrested by the Turk by by uh, the Turkish police for trying to um, remove artifacts, i.e. gold, from um, from Troy that he found. Uh, he he basically was a glory hound, and he also uh, the he said I found the Troy of Homer. Well, no, he dug right through the Troy of Homer, but anyway, yeah. Later later digs out there and said, oh, here's Homer's lair. Schliemann dug a little too deep. Uh, but yeah, the, the, that's you know I would say Howard Carter, but he's not a glory hound. He's more of a he was more of a uh, either a treasure hunter or a dedicated or a dedicated researcher. I think it was a little bit of both. Uh, Howard Carter, the discoverer of King Tut. Uh, he definitely was funded by a rich, by a rich dude, though. So yeah, yeah. I think his wife, his wife's uh, father was was the fund, the person funding it. Uh, but then you come across the other folks, the folks that that make up most of the people who go out there and do day in hit digs and so forth. The pot stealers, also known as jacks, jumpers, tomb raiders, tomb robbers. And very, and most especially, especially the Indianas. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll cover. I'll you know, I'll explain that uh, the big difference between glory hounds and treasure hunters and all the above. That at least glory hounds and treasure hunters will document what they're doing. They'll take records and they'll 
do everything properly. Pot sealers get a bulldozer and bulldozer and then sift through the remains to see what they find. Basically, pot sealers are just are the, are the number one scourge for most uh, digs out there uh, right right now, even on on Earth. Um, you you know the uh, the place where they shot um, Indiana Jones and the uh, and and the and the and the and the chalice. Uh, no, not the last chalice. What was it? Um, the the third one with the uh, Sean Connery. Yeah. Well, that was that was uh, uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Yeah, yeah. Tetra, that's it. Tetra, that place uh, is so hit by Bedouin pot stealers. They're making most of the finds, but they're not documenting. They're just digging, digging, see if they find a tomb. They do. They raid it and take out all the good stuff, and then bury it and then ignore the rest. Yeah, it's the number one number one uh, industry in South um, in in the Mesoamerica in um, uh, Yucatan and so forth is digging up old Mayan ruins and selling and selling the resulting stuff. Pot sealers are the biggest bane to archaeology out there because they just come along and dig it up and sell it. Um, yeah, and the tomb mirrors fall, sort of fall in that area too. But tomb mirrors are uh, pot sealers are the guys who show up in a little dinky spaceship land and do some digs and go tomb raiders. Are a bit more. Uh, they have better, better equipment, but they're both just pot stealers. They just steal. Oh stuff. yeah, I, I see the Tomb Raiders, John, as at least they plan. Yeah. They'll do research. Yeah. They'll 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 read up and 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 follow up on legends and the lore. Yeah. Your typical pot stealers will. It's practically they stumble on it. Oh look, we found this pot. Well, we can sell it somewhere. Okay. Yeah. Or they show up at at, at 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 old digs and just go through the stuff that, that everyone carefully reburied and save it for later. That's another, another thing they love to do too, uh, you know. And they, you know, someone they went to this world. Well, let's go there and see what we can find. Yeah. Now they're per- preferable to jacks and jumpers. Um, basically, jacks and jumpers they'll rate ongoing digs. They'll just show up and say, "Hi, what you, what you guys find at the end of the gun." Uh, basically, they like claim jumpers. Yeah, yeah claim jumpers. Uh, they're like the claim no, jumpers no, they're more like raiders. Gold. Yeah, they're more like raiders. But uh, but in this case, they want to go after some place where there's people where there's people already digging, because because you get more money for something for an item that that has a provenance. Yeah, it's, it's that guy in in Indiana Jones and uh, in the Temple of Doom. Uh, or actually, you know, the very first one, you know, there, uh, where as soon as he comes out with a golden skull, he's like, is, you know, as I've proven once again, Jones, there's nothing you can find that I cannot take from you. Oh, Belloc. Yeah, yeah, Belloc. Oh. Yeah, that was, that was his name. Yeah, Belloc. Yeah, he he's definitely is a jumper or, or a, a jacker. Uh, these are names that have been that is, <laughs> known to archaeologists out there, you know. And they, okay, so, all right, so these are not... Names that you've just made up. These are actually used as pejoratives in the archaeology field. Yeah, yeah. They're just sort of slightly modified for being in the future. Instead of being claim jumpers or or, or dig jumpers or hijackers or whatever, they're just called Jackson jumpers. Okay. Yeah, but yeah, these are actually known. You know, there's places in the you know, in the Middle East where you find something interesting. People show up and gut with guns to take it from you. They may leave you alive. You mean what they haven't bombed in the Middle East because that was a big thing a couple of years ago that a lot of yeah. a lot of history was being lost yeah. due to yeah. all the war there. Whole places that could have been archaeological digs that would have, you know, made people rich 
are nothing more than dust and rubble because of all the fighting that's been going on there. Over the past oh yeah. Oh yeah. Years. Yeah. It's just a thing. And, uh, if you're lucky, they leave witnesses. If not, they don't leave witnesses. Well, come on. You always leave one to tell the tale. Come on. Well, I would say if if they're if they're uh, races from uh, Esco space, they'll probably leave you alive. If they're Hogoni raiders, oh no, yeah, you're not. Le- you're you, you, you unless you know something, you're not leaving that world. Yeah, at least you're, not you're, not in your body. The only way you're, the only way you're leaving that world is if you're getting scraped off the bottom of a zanky boot. Yeah. <laughs> Now, interesting enough, the Indianas are the vigilantes of xenoarchaeology. Basically, they're Indiana Jones. Uh, every, as as and I love it. I remember reading a reading a paper about no reading an article about him. And they say, well, twenty first century, he's a really bad archaeologist. But for the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties, wasn't actually too much out of line for a lot of archaeologists, you know. But they are. But the thing is, they're vigilantes. They show up to rescue things. Unfortunately, they're just as, maybe just as destructive of that find as witnessed by uh, Indiana Jones destroying a temple, destroying the uh, Ark of the Co- destroying where the um, all the context for the Ark of the Covenant, destroying the. Uh, the the fantastical stuff in India, destroying the home of the you know, destroying the uh, building the, the buildings where the uh, where the cup of Christ was was kept, and of course destroying the alien, the alien building. You know, he destroys everything in his wake. You know, there's nothing left behind. <laughs> you know, and of course they're always saying it belongs to the museum. They don't say though, along with context, so it has its place in history and in the, place in history and that can be determined. They basically they wish they were combat archaeologists, but they're not. And you know, and the, the great example is actually from the very first Indiana Jones movie. You know, he's in there, he he goes and he finds the, the little gold statue of the guy taking a squat, yanks it, runs it out of there, and you know, and he thinks he's he's lost the treasure. What he doesn't realize is that the treasure is right behind him in that temple. Here was a temple with fully functional traps. How the heck was that possible? How did that light trap work? You put your hand in the light and the and the trap goes off. How does that work? That that temple is a dig of a lifetime. It will give you more information on how things work. I mean, probably a lot of it was probably maintained by the Hovitos, the uh, the local the local natives. I mean, uh, all those dart guns. Uh, sorry, bowstrings decay after time. Yeah. The only way those dart guns would work was that, there, that there's like little passageways behind them where the Hovios come in, change them out, and put new ones in. That's the only way to explain that one. But or they, they were air powered. Okay, but how and how does that work? And you have a trigger mechanism in the floor, so that there's no way to get at that. So you have this trigger mechanism that fires off these dart guns. And it's like, oh my god, how does this work? I mean, that you know, the fact it was built by a people who basically use stone so everything's got to be made from stone and or maybe from maybe some copper copper beaten copper stuff but basically it's yeah why not some leather well i mean uh they they use well it could be gold you're right they could be using gold for the pipes i didn't say that i mean you know if uh they could have used leather very you know well oiled leather yeah. Uh, it was dry enough inside the cave that they could, you know, I mean, outside's a jungle, but inside, I didn't see a whole lot of water drippage. No, so but there, they, were, they, there were vines growing up the pest of where the, where the golden statue was, though. So there was some moisture in there. 
Right, but the point is, is that you know, a well-oiled piece of uh, leather would be able, especially if it wasn't used very much, you know, could could still be good enough to last through at least one cycle. Yep. Yeah. And uh, and of course the big the of course the big one is the seven meter tall round ball stone that would have taken years for them to make with just stone tools. I mean, it, you know, and the thing was, it wasn't there to crush people. Look what it did. It, it was there to seal the tomb. You were not supposed to be able to get to where Indiana was. You know, only because he was Indiana Jones did he actually make it in front of that stone ball. It was meant to get in front of you and block the tomb and seal you in there so you couldn't get out. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, seven is a seven meters tall. That would be several tons of granite or basalt. I think it actually basalt in that right. area. But anyway, and, it, and, and if it if it goes and if it went into the end of it and plugged it, then there's no way you could roll that upwards. Yeah, it's basically sealed. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's sealed, and you're stuck. Good luck, Charlie. But yeah, but yeah, like I said, but that's Indiana Jones. I mean, that's what Indiana does. They end up destroying all this stuff that basically is more valuable than the thing they rescued. You know, you know. So yeah, Indiana's are they? They're wannabe combat archaeologists. So now, having said that at least twice now, I need to talk about combat archaeologists. Now, this actually came from um, a novel, Newton's Wake. Uh, Newton's Wake is a post. Nanoclipse novel. Basically, uh, there was a partial singularity. Not everyone, not everyone joined in, and they have all these w- weird and wonderful artifacts out there strung out in this little wormhole network. And it's up to the combat archaeologists to go in and to investigate. They're usually armed because the the ruins they're investigating will fight back sometimes. So a combat ar- archaeologist deals with intact and operational ancient bases and the occasional great machine. They, you know, they are they are zine archaeologists. They they're fully trained and they're probably all got PhDs or at least a master's in in zine archaeology, uh, and they also have military training because they have to fight. You know, they're going to be in places where you know things are going to be shooting at you or trying to eat your foot or whatever. They are the um, they are the can I say badass? Yeah, they're the badasses of archaeologists. You know, they go places where everyone else goes. Yeah, that's good. Let's leave. Let the guys let the guys with the guns deal with it, not us. Bye, you know. Uh, so yeah, those yeah, that's pretty. You know, that's the big bunch. And oh, because we're dealing with Isco space, you also will have government appointed observers. They're there to make sure that you're not doing anything. You know, you're, you're not going to steal anything or pack things away and hide it and then, then claim later you discovered it. Bureaucratic bean counters. Let's just yeah, a rose find the other name. Yeah. Well, they're they're actually there primarily for propriety's sake. Yeah, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, and and a, and a good portion of digs out there are you know, you know the well, sponsors for digs because these things cost money, lots of it. Oh well, yeah, uh, you're going to another world. It's always going to cost money, and the number one is corporates. Uh, the corporations want you know are always want to look out for new technology, so they're the number one sponsor of digs out there followed mainly by governments the esco government or very or the various planetary governments okay and and, okay john for because we haven't done ftl in a long time some of the acronyms within the ftl game you might want to clarify 
yeah. because we haven't given this game a lot of love and there are going to be some new listeners going, okay, this FTL 2448, oh, this is an older game. Yeah. So you might want uh, yeah. ISCO stands for the Interstellar Cooperative. Uh, it actually is the um, it's this the major government. It's basically a, a corporate confederacy. Every you know, basically it came from the ICO, the International Co- Corporate uh, Corporate Co- Cooperative. Yeah, that's a fun one to say. Uh, and basically went to the stars. And it's more or less a corporate, though there are several worlds that are part of ISCO that are not corporations. They're just you know, you know some aliens to go corporations. What's that? And others like the Trell. Oh, corporations! We have several. It's an in joke for Trells. Trells are the con men of the of the gal of the galaxy. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah. So Isco is the uh, the main government. It's it you know it's rules. I think it's run by a uh, council. There really isn't a president of Isco. It's just too diverse for there to be one person that can call the shots. So it's run by a council. And the military arm is the Interstellar Court of Law. ICL, yes. Yeah, yeah they're both the judge, jury, and executioner in many cases. Um, let's be honest. When it takes months or day, months or weeks or months to get someplace, yeah, you bring your court with you, and you bring enough people to make sure you can enforce that. Enforce that. There really isn't a navy. It's the ICL. The ICL has all the combat ships and so forth. Basically, they're the space patrol. When yeah, when it comes right down to it, that's not, that's a nice way of putting it. So yeah, government, and these are usually high security situations when the government goes in. They're looking at maybe a simian tech installation, and therefore, yeah, the government the ISCO wants to be there, and they want to make sure that no one else gets it. So yeah, that usually is an ISCO operation, and then of course the number three is university. Most, you know, you yeah, have, yeah, yeah. You get you if you have, you have a xenoarchaeology uh, uh, course, then you have xenoarchaeologists who go out on digs every so often. Uh, it's going to be like a two or three year, two, three, maybe four year um, trip because you know these digs take time, and you just you know, unlike you know driving down the road to from your. I was in Colorado Springs. I took I took uh, I was taking several semesters of, of anthropology and archaeology, and they would routinely drive. Uh, to the western portion of the no eastern portion of the state and, and go to a dig, you know it's a bit more than driving to a low dig for the for their classes. So yeah, when you're a graduate student, uh, you're gonna be taking your classes on whatever world you're doing your dig on, you know, for the next four years. Kind of like a work study. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and after that, and this is something that we would never have thought of twenty years ago, but after that, your Kickstarters. You're crowd for you're crowdfunded. You're self-funded. You know, uh, no, I'm sorry, that's the wrong one. Self-funded. Sorry, I skipped a bit. Self-funded. Basically, you're billionaires. They want they want they want to be bigger billionaires. They want to be trillionaires. So yeah, they're they're fund- more rich. Yeah. Or again, they're really rich and they've got kids they need to get out of their hair. That too. Yeah. And, don't you know, don't underestimate that. History is full of 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 uh, aristocracy that didn't know what to do with their kids. Oh yeah, there was the. Uh, you've heard of the term the Grand Tour, that was that was a, that was a, the main reason for that. Oh yeah, so Joseph's ready to uh, become part of society. Well, he needs to, you know, see the continent, and you go on the Grand Tour. You know, yeah, that was a wow. British, yeah, that was a British thing. Five years later, yeah, he's, he's, a, got, he's out of your hair for five years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So it been closely, of course, closely linked to the um, the self-funded is the organized crime. Yeah, but, I didn't get that. So well, why don't you explain that a bit? Organized crime because, well, uh, an archaeological dig, properly licensed and, and observed, is a great way to launder lots of money. And you may actually find something that will make you more money, legitimately. Or you might find something that you can sell that's not so legitimate. You know, hey, uh, you're on some on some alien world, and you find some alien pharmaceuticals that happen to react nicely with with human or Borchin or Bloxian physiology. Hey, we have a we okay, have a new drug. I wouldn't have, okay, I wouldn't have taken that as a possible source. I do see the logic. It would be a good way for laundering money. Yeah. Oh, we got these millions and million. We got to do. Oh, we got this archaeologist here who wants to to archaeologize something and maybe get us something equitable. Yeah, yeah it's a great way. It's a great way to launder money. By the way, Josie's mother hates that voice of the <laughs> dumb monster trying to sound respectable. Yeah. She despises it. So if she's listening, she's gritting her teeth. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's, it's, a, it's a, you know, and, and the reason is because I was looking at reading up about a lot of the, uh, uh, down down to Yucatan, some of the digs down there are being sponsored by uh, cocaine smugglers because they needed some. Oh yeah, they can launder all that money they're getting. Yeah, so yeah, I, I as I said, it never came to me, but it makes sense actually in a frightening way. Yeah, and in this case, they might actually find something that may make them more money in a legitimate legitimate way. So hey, you know, or not so legitimate, you know, it, it depends what uh, how they use it. And of course, the last one again, which I skipped to j jump the gun on, is crowdfunding. You know, just like I said, twenty years ago, we would never have thought of you know running a Kickstarter, but it's a thing. You know, you some guy runs a Kickstarter, and he gets you know gets enough money to fund a ship, and some equipment, and maybe the the high the high donors are coming along with them. You know, and they're going out, and they're going to go and dig up some some archaeological stuff. Yay, you know. Everyone's hoping they're gonna make money off of it. You know, that's the Oh reason. great. What I made the stretch goal. What is it? You'll be gone for five years on some crappy planet somewhere. <laughs> Digging. That's my stretch goal. No, oh no, the stretch you know, because since none of these worlds have probably been named, one stretch goal is we get the name it you get to name the world. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, as far as um speaking of archaeology, or actually more paleontology. Um, there was a dinosaur dig, probably God now, about 10, 15 years ago, and they were playing a lot of Dire Straits music. They actually named the new dinosaur that they found after the guitarist for the Dire Straits, Mark Knopfler. You know, Money for Nothing and, you know, Walk of Life. So, yeah, there is somewhere in a museum a Knopfler source. <laughs> oh, more than one. Oh yeah, there there's several there's several bacteria and insects been named after various authors and famous people. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's a little blood tick named after Harlan Ellison. But anyway, Whoa. <laughs> dude, uh, it's <laughs> part of the background. This is that in the, in the FTL universe, there are elite, there are four different ancient races. The um, the Mazbach, the Akati, the Tribotl, and the Artisi. These are yes. I actually have that old PDF up here under it, it's um the lost races. the lost races PDF. Yeah, yeah. 
And the uh, the Akati and the Mazbak had a war 200,000 years ago. Uh, we think the Greks may have been involved. Uh, the Fritzians are around for that. These are two alien races in the FTL. And it's a good chance that the Zonki were warriors, also warriors in this war. Uh, they're now an employee of the Hagu. And it's possible that the Sandral, which are a methane breather, may have been involved. Or because they're methane breathers, they may have been involved in a totally different war that was fought between methane breathers. Because, you know, oxygen breathers, methane breathers really don't get along with each other. Considering each, each one considers their own atmosphere, the other's atmosphere to be rampant poison. Well, yeah. Also, the Sandra operate at 60 atmospheres, which... Yeah, but in, but in cyberspace, you know, love can bloom. Love can bloom, yeah. <laughs> uh, did you ever read the uh, Shanur series by uh, C.J. Cherry? Two of the races. Yeah. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. The, the were a crazy race. Anyway, but yeah, the uh, so the Mazbach and the Akati had a war. Uh, the Mazbach were the nice, with the good guys, and the Akati were the bad guys. Well, and I call this the same way the Vorlons and the Shadows were good guys and bad guys, uh, I would say. Uh, though the Akati hold that better than the Shadows did <clears throat> from Babylon 5. Um, because the Akati, more or less, best I can tell, treated everyone else as smart animals. They considered themselves to be the only intelligent species in the galaxy maybe in the entire universe. Everyone else was just a good source of protein. Let's see. As the Mosbach extended and built their vast cities of glass and steel, they became friends and teachers to hundreds of alien races that they uplifted them from their primitive beginnings. Then the Mosbach met the Akati, a truly alien life form with no consideration for other life forms. Oh, yeah. When the Akati crossed hundred, cross hundreds of light years and results were terrifying, worlds were sterilized, continents shattered, and suns destabilized. Uh, basically resulted in the ultra obliteration of the Akati and Mazbak, as well as many other races. There were survivors, but, you know, not very many. But yeah, the Mazbak were just basically uh, stunned that they ran across a, such a I, I think I don't want to call them xenophobic because they really weren't xenophobic. They weren't afraid of everyone. You're just this convenient source of protein and in the way. So the Akati really treated you a little more, treated people more like, oh, look, it's, it, it walks around and it can use tools. Good, I can use it. It, it, it. They never really considered anyone else to be intelligent. You're just all smart animals. And we're delicious. And delicious. Yeah. yeah, the Akati learned to Nova Suns as their enemy released a biospecific plague across a thousand worlds. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Those are places you got to worry about finding. Because that one little spore of that plague might have might have survived and mutated over the course of 200,000 years. And if you're a modern-day insectoid race, it may just... Oh, look, fresh meat. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the older race, though, is the Artisi. They're around f about 500,000 years ago. And they're basically, I think, the only fragments you can find of, uh, of them are basically what's on on moons and, uh, and maybe ships. Uh, let's see. Ceramic plates that decorated their mile-high towers and industrial centers. Yeah. After 490,000-plus years, even these are hard to find and require major excavation. Yeah, those you'll find only on airless moons. You know, and, and, and that's about, about it. intact buildings on the, on the, on moons they, they lived on. Because everyone says, puts, says a base on moons. It's just a thing you do. 
you know. Um, but the interesting one is the Trebodal. They're only 20,000 years old. They're youngsters. In fact, they're youngsters compared to other uh, FTL races. But they didn't live on planets. They lived in tree ships. They somehow genetically engineered trees to, well, become spaceships. With oh, no, they rocked the biotech from what I'm reading here. Yeah. And then something happened. And they're all dead. They're all, you know. Uh, it is assumed that a biological or botanical plague ripped across Trebottle space and they were unable to stop it. Recent research speculates that their star might have gone nova due to the scorched exterior of one smaller craft found and the several hundred individuals that were trapped in it. Oh, here we go. The Krovin hoped to reconstitute the race from frozen DNA. Yeah. Wait. Wait. Yeah, just... Life will find a way. And if not, then the Krovin will do so as a joke. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, it's... Well, if they got bodies, they have brains. Yeah, but just be honest. Just because you're dead doesn't stop the Krovin from reading your brains. It, your brains will be, will be turned into a pile of mush afterwards, but they'll have read all your connections so they can be able to give you your brain back. Yeah, yeah. Krelvins, the jokers of the universe. Uh, and the thing is, Krelvins don't have to be that old. Uh, a thousand years, you know, a thousand years is enough change that they could be, you know, a thousand, ten thousand years. I mean, they, they suppose they, they live around a uh, a, a um, uh, they they have a, a, a Dyson sphere around their home star. Who is to say that home star isn't a red isn't a red dwarf? It means you'll be there for trillions of years, so they're happy. You know, we don't really know how, how old the Krelvin are, but you know, they got home and they, they, they and they're not going to tell anyone where it is. It looks just like a brown dwarf to anyone else looking for them. But that's those races, and they all have left behind artifacts. Uh, most of the stuff you'll find will be in space. The good st stuff that's actually usable, like t for technology. But this was a war. And this was a war of annihilation, so there's a good chance you're going to find other things, maybe things on planets, maybe things on planets that are still operational, and that may not be. And well, that'll be that that just be bad news. Um, but we'll cover that in, uh, later. But yeah, it's this is the, the, there's a lot of things to go looking for, and there's other races out there that have risen up in those two hundred thousand years and fallen back down again, or things happen. I mean, we have uh, 20 races, 30 races in FTL. I, f I didn't count. A lot. A lot. And they're the ones that, that made it into space or got found. At least, at least a third of them are, were not, didn't have, weren't spacefaring. You know, they were discovered, but they were smart enough to realize the, 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 uh, uh, the advantage of being in space and the, you know, Dabes and they hit, went for it with gusto. Dave's are two meters tall, no, three meters tall, forearms, and they look like bug-eyed uh, forearm gorillas. And they're the nicest people you ever meet, as long as you don't have puppies around or small pets. To be continued. Yo, brothers, this was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at TriTech Games. And if you don't, we'll be after your sorry butts.
because we're some bad mothers.